You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. How many cryptids can you name? You know, those strange creatures from folklore and legend like the Loch Ness Monster or Sasquatch. Those two are probably the most popular worldwide. Then there's the Yeti of Himalayan folklore, the Big Cats of Britain, the Chupacabra of the Americas. The U.S. alone is crawling with them. There's the Mothman of West Virginia, the Jersey Devil, the Skunk Ape of Southern Florida, and one of my favorites, the Loveland Frogman of Ohio. So let's make this a real challenge. How many distinctly Canadian cryptids can you name? Chances are, not many. Canada is the second largest country in the world, with nearly 10 million square kilometers of land. Plenty of space for all sorts of strange things to roam free. And yet, with the exception of the Sasquatch, the Loup Garou, and a few regional lake monsters, we don't hear a lot about mysterious Canadian creatures. One key reason, perhaps, is our low population. Canada is home to just over 38 million people. That's about a million and a half less than the state of California. Fewer people means fewer sightings, and subsequently fewer stories, which in turn means less sensationalism and less of a chance for the legends to grow, to become a part of the culture. In addition, the vast majority of Canada's population lives within just a few hours of the U.S. border, leaving a lot of the Canadian wilderness unexplored. But the stories are out there. They're just difficult to find. And I think they deserve a lot more recognition, examination, and appreciation, whether they're well-known or, as is often the case, completely overlooked. This episode features a cryptid from that second category, a fascinating creature that never quite became legend. Tonight, I want to help change that. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, you'll hear about a strange and terrifying monster from a valley in southern Quebec and one man's life-threatening encounter with the beast. We'll also compare the story to other tales of legendary creatures and consider why, after 130 years, it remains virtually unknown and what we can do to change that. So take a seat by the fire and I'll tell you the tale of a cryptozoological creature that never got its moment in the spotlight. In fact, as far as I know, it's never even had a name. Until now. This is the story of what I like to call the Demon of Saint-Emilie. Part 1. The Demon of Saint-Emilie It all started in the fall of 1892, when several farmers noticed that some of their animals were missing. This was shortly after lambing, you see, and the farmers would check their flocks twice a day to ensure all was well. Then, one morning, they would discover that a lamb had disappeared. There are no wolves in the valley, so the idea was that a bear had gotten into the sheepfold and carried the lamb away. But something was strange. Bears will certainly prey on young cattle, swine, and sheep, but they're maulers by nature. They'll use their enormous weight to pull you down, pin you to the ground, and bite at your spine, and keep biting until you stop struggling, 
finally making their kill by sinking their teeth into your upper neck. Then they'll drag your body to a covered area and start to feed. It's a messy endeavor, and it means that bear attacks are usually easy to detect. So the farmers would check their fences for any holes, just in case the little lamb had lost its way, then the ground for any telltale signs of the predator. Prints in the dirt or signs of a struggle, heavy disturbances, kicked up earth, trails of blood through the sheepfold or over the fence, but there was nothing. The lamb had simply vanished. Soon, another lamb would disappear, either from the same village or somewhere close by. Word spread through the region, and people realized that the creature was stalking the villages of the Noir Valley. First Saint-Michel-de-Sens, then Saint-Zénon, Saint-Damien, Saint-Gabriel, and finally Saint-Emilie-de-L'Energie. Now, there are a lot of saints in the valley, so perhaps it only makes sense that there would be one or two demons as well. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Of course, when Joseph LaSalle first ventured into the forest of Saint-Emilie, he believed he was hunting a troublesome bear. The beast had left no trace at the farm, but the frequency of its attacks suggested a bear of significant size, one that might be easier to track through the dense forest that grew behind the village. Joseph took his time creeping through the undergrowth, looking for droppings, snapped branches, marked trees, or ideally the bear itself. He had been searching most of the morning without success, and the sun had climbed high above him. As a hunter, he knew there was no sense in searching further until the early hours of evening, when the air would cool and the setting sun would fill the forest with slanting purple shadows. Then he would patrol the tree line and, if he was lucky, catch the creature on its way to its next meal. For now, he would head home. About five miles from the village, Joseph came to a clearing. The forest canopy opened like a mouth, and he stood in a gold and green circle of light. The breeze played lightly across the grass, and birds sang in the trees. He could feel the midday sun beating on his shoulders and smell the pine in the air. He stopped to wipe the sweat from his brow, never taking his eyes from the darkness of the forest ahead. Suddenly, the birds went quiet, and a chill crept up his spine. The circle of light faded, and a huge shadow passed over him. Then he heard it. A loud, croaking cry. He looked up. An enormous bird, the biggest he had ever seen, was circling above, its massive wings passing in great arcs across the sun. What was it? A crane? An eagle? He lifted his hand to shade his eyes and watched the black figure moving through the pale sky and realized it was getting bigger. The monster bird, or whatever it was, was quickly descending, its spiral constricting as it descended upon him. Joseph pulled the double-barreled rifle from his shoulder, squinted into the sun, took careful aim, and fired. The creature gave a horrible scream, twisted in the air, and tumbled to the ground. Joseph ran toward it and fired his second barrel the moment it hit the ground. Yet those two powerful rounds, crafted specifically to hunt big game, were still not enough to kill the beast. It was thrashing and growling, so he grabbed his rifle by the barrel, swung it like a club, and went in for the kill. The thing lay 20 yards away, 
a writhing, feathered mass that flailed in the dirt. He moved closer and was shocked at its massive size. Crumpled on the ground with its back toward him, it was nearly as big as a man. Its right wing was fully extended and was longer than he was tall. The flight feathers stretched out like long fingers as it beat the air, churning rocks and dust and bits of grass in a gale. Its left wing seemed broken, tucked limply by its side. It lurched and fell, and Joseph saw what looked like a large calf's tail coiled on the ground beneath its huge tail feathers. It seemed he had caught the creature on its way back from some rancher's field. He tightened his grip and brought the rifle down hard between the animal's shoulders. It screamed, arched its wings, scrambled upright, and turned to the side. Its right wing lifted slowly to reveal a face, not of an eagle, but almost human, similar to a primate. Its small eyes glared at him above a flat, upturned nose. Two rounded ears were aggressively drawn back at the sides of its head, which was covered in a coarse, dark hair. Its snarling mouth flashed a set of sharp yellow teeth. It snapped at Joseph's hands as he leapt back in terror. The hideous creature shifted and faced him head on, and he could see that, though its back and wings were feathered, the underside of its body was as hairy and black as its head. He swung again and missed, and the demon stretched upward, flapped its wings, reeled back, and lashed out at him with a set of savage claws. The black razors met their mark and tore a bloody scratch down his arm. The beast lunged forward and snapped again. Joseph raised the rifle in defense, and the creature's teeth caught the edge of the forest dock and ground into the wood. A stinking trail of saliva poured down the stock and coated Joseph's hands. He wrenched his weapon free, swung it around, and brought it alongside the monster's head, then followed through again and again. When he was finished, the demon was dead, and Joseph kneeled in the grass, breathless, bloodied, and bruised. He wanted to examine the body, to fully comprehend what terror he had encountered, but the thing was too horrible, too unbelievable to behold. He backed away slowly until he reached the cover of the forest, then ran home to Sainte Emilie. Hours later, Joseph returned with a horse, his father, and four others from the village. After the initial shock of seeing such an unnatural creature, the men waved away the buzzing flies and examined the body. Scraps of flesh still hung from the monster's claws, which extended from two powerful legs that bent backward like a wolf's. Joseph realized that the tufted tail he had seen earlier wasn't from an unfortunate calf. It belonged to the demon, attached at the base of its spine. Its head was small and round like a monkey's, slightly undersized for its frame, but its wings were massive, stretching 15 feet from tip to tip. Evening shadows stretched across the valley, and the men worked in silence to bind those monstrous wings and strange, dog-like legs, and it took all their strength to load the abomination onto the back of the reluctant horse and then lead the nervous animal back home. On the outskirts of the village, they met a counselor from a nearby town 
and told him of the battle with the strange winged terror from the sky. A deal was struck, money changed hands, and the counselor cleared a place on his wagon. Before the first stars appeared in the sky, he was once again on his way to Joliet, with a cart full of valley produce and the decaying corpse of a strange and terrible monster. As for Joseph, he returned home a hero with a little more money in his pocket and a deep sigh of relief knowing that his livelihood was no longer in jeopardy. Sure enough, the rest of the season passed without incident, and each and every lamb that remained grew up healthy and accounted for. Though they were told the city councillor intended to exhibit the monster, neither Joseph nor the others would ever see it again. But every so often, when out in the field, they would lift their heads and gaze across the forests and sloping hills of the valley, scan the horizon, and eye with suspicion every bird that reeled overhead. Joseph had managed to kill the demon, that's true, but there's no telling how many more might be out there. There's no telling when another of its kind might crawl from its cave or forest home deep within the mountains and once again darken the skies of the Noir Valley as the demon of Saint-Emilie. Part 2. Half-Bird, Half-Beast Usually, before I tell a campfire story like this one, I like to start by describing its setting. I find an overview of the region and its landscape can give us a better appreciation for the traditional storyteller and their environment. But this story is a little different. While I think it's a perfect tale for the fireside, it is, from what I can tell, almost completely unknown. It comes to us not from a talented Quebecois raconteur or a book of local legends, but rather from an obscure newspaper article from the late 19th century. On October 16, 1892, the Illustrated Buffalo Express printed a news story titled Half Bird, Half Beast. Attributed to an unnamed Montreal correspondent of the New York Press, the subhead offers an enticing summary. Quote, An amazing creature shot and killed by a voracious Canadian farmer, end quote. Below these sensational headlines, the anonymous author is quick to acknowledge the questionable nature of the narrative and eager to avoid any responsibility for the accuracy of the claims, writing, quote, While I have not seen the monster in question, the Inquirer correspondent has the story from the mouth of Mr. Medard LaSalle, a wealthy and reputable farmer of Saint-Emilie de l'Energie, end quote. With the burden of proof safely sidestepped and thrust upon Monsieur LaSalle, the author finally tells us the story that inspired the dramatic telling I just shared. Now, you've already heard the key points of the story, but for the sake of clarity, here are the basics. For two weeks, the farmers of Saint-Emilie de l'Energie and other neighboring villages had suffered, quote, the depredations of some beast of prey who nightly visited their sheepfolds and carried off some of their finest lambs, end quote. Assuming that a bear was the cause of the problem, one of Medard LaSalle's sons, Joseph LaSalle, a, quote, big young fellow of 25 years, end quote, decided to search for the bear in the woods nearby. Before long, he was startled by a loud, croaking cry, looked up, and saw what he supposed was a monster eagle. He shot it out of the sky with one round from a double-barreled rifle, shot it a second time as it fell, then engaged in, quote, a terrible battle, lasting for several moments, end quote. 
In the end, Joseph was victorious. He, his father, and four others examined the creature, noted that, with its wings fully extended, it looked, quote, as big as a horse, end quote, and described the various details I shared earlier, the 15-foot wingspan, the 5-foot height, the feathered wings, monkey head, wolf legs, and calf tail. They carried the dead creature back to the village where it was sold to Mr. Aldery Charland, a counselor and businessman from the town of Joliet, who just happened to be passing through the area shopping for produce. Quote, He bought the monster, probably for exhibition purposes, from the LaSalle's, and Friday evening last, it was brought by train to his place of business in Joliet, where it is now in process of preparation to prevent decay, after which it will be shipped to this city, Montreal, for scientific examination, end quote. And who would be conducting that examination? Apparently none other than the esteemed scientists of Montreal's McGill University. And yet it seems that the remains of a strange eagle-monkey-wolf-cow hybrid never made it to the hallowed halls of that institution, let alone any history-making exhibition. In fact, it seems the entire story stops there. The exact same article, with a few typos here and there, appears four months later in Australia's Maitland Mercury. But from what I can tell, nothing ever came of the story. There were no follow-ups, no debunkings, and certainly no announcement from the scientific community about the discovery of some confounding chimera from rural Quebec. Now, this story was said to be from a region that, to this day, is populated almost entirely by people who are exclusively francophone. So it's possible that other stories were printed in local French publications. Francophone newspapers aren't as widely read, and thus not as thoroughly archived as those in English, so it's hard to say for sure. But the few Quebec newspapers I could track down make no mention of such a story or a creature. There is nothing in the provincial library and archives, nor in McGill's online records of student publications from the time. The story, it seems, simply faded into obscurity. But could it be true? Well, the article's author is certainly enthusiastic about the idea. They tell us that the tale comes straight from the mouth of the wealthy and respected farmer, Medard LaSalle, and that it is supported by, quote, three well-known residents of Joliet, end quote, whom he doesn't name. The last sentence of the article, and final word on the subject, echoes the author's earlier trepidation about misrepresenting rumor for fact, but then, in the same breath, insists on the storyteller's behalf that the tale is true. Quote, Those who claim to have seen the monster say it is the most extraordinary sight they have ever witnessed, and it is hardly possible that all the respectable men who tell the story about it can be lying, and if not, what can the monster be that is at present causing such a sensation in the Joliet district of the province? End quote. But not so fast. If we jump back to the very first sentence of the story, we get our first obvious example of the author's fear of commitment and something that's not so obvious. It's a context indicator of sorts that casts doubt on the story, and it comes in the form of a sea serpent. Quote, A most extraordinary story comes from Joliet today, which, if true, leaves forever buried in the shadowy shade of oblivion the most fantastic sea serpent that ever plowed the briny. It is an account of the killing at the little village of Sainte Amélie de l'Energie of a monster half-bird, half-beast, whose classification will puzzle the most deeply learned naturalist." End quote. That's weird, isn't it? What's with the seemingly random mention of a sea serpent and the briny? 
Well, it probably seemed less random and made more sense to readers at the time. In newspapers of the late 19th century, the mention of a sea serpent is unlikely to be just a passing reference to another cryptozoological creature. It's much more likely to be a reference to what's known as the silly season. That's the term for what is otherwise known as the slow news season. That time of year, usually late summer to mid-autumn, or between Christmas and February, when the politicians are on holiday and there's not a whole lot of news to report about. The papers still have pages to fill and readers to entertain, so sometimes they'll dig from their archives some sort of dubious article, a shocking headline, sensational discovery, or a silly, entertaining story, and use it to fill a gap on the page. In the late 19th century, nothing was more iconic of the silly season than a sea serpent. In fact, by the 1890s, reports of sea serpents were so common during silly season that they became a bit of a joke, a sort of shorthand for ridiculous and outrageous news filler. Then there's also the fact that the story was first published in a special Illustrated Sunday edition. These kinds of publications were known to focus more on entertaining their readers rather than informing them. Together, these two facts were at the time, and still are today, clear signals that a healthy dose of skepticism is advised. And here's another reason to doubt. Neither the Buffalo Express nor the Maitland Mercury printed a dateline with the story. That means there's no telling when it was actually written. It could have been written that morning or several years in the past. There's no way of knowing. And yet the article uses temporal terms like today, two weeks past, Wednesday of last week, and Friday evening. These words are meaningless without a proper dateline, and they become rather suspicious when printed in two different papers over five months apart. The story also tells us that lambs were being taken. But lambs tend to be born in the spring, especially in Quebec when long Canadian winters can blanket your field with snow. And of course bears, the original suspected predator, hibernate during the colder months. It's likely then that at both times the story was published, first in October, then in February, there were no lambs to go missing, and likely few bears to hunt. This odd bit of timing suggests that the story had been received in the past, rejected for not being particularly newsworthy, but put aside for a day when the paper had a hole to fill. Okay, so there are elements that suggest this story should be taken with a grain of salt. But there are also a number of convincing details. We can confirm, for example, that the village of Saint-Emilie de l'Energie is a real place by simply glancing at a map. And we can take a little more time to research the three men named in the story. The wealthy farmer, Medard Lassalle, his son and slayer of the beast, Joseph Lassalle, and the counselor from Joliet, Aldery Charland, were real people, according to historic records. Though Joseph's age as reported was off by a few years. Medard and Joseph both appear in census records, and according to one researcher, Charlande appears in official church documentation from the city of Joliet. These facts are interesting, but they don't prove anything. If you listen to my season 1 episode on Jacko the Ape Boy, you know it's not unheard of for 19th century reporters to write a completely fabricated story and attach a real person's name to the narrative without their knowledge or their consent. But, at the very least, it gives us hope that there's some truth to the legend. To that point, I want to note one more subtle detail that I feel lends more credibility to the story. If you were told that a number of lambs had gone missing, without a trace, and were asked to guess which predator was to blame, 
it's likely you would first guess it was the work of a wolf. Bears aren't very sneaky, as I noted in my story earlier, and coyotes tend to be a little small. Perhaps that's why the predation of lambs and sheep by wolves is a recurring theme in many cultures, seen in everything from the Bible to Aesop's fables to Disney films and Warner Brothers cartoons. It's a sort of cultural knowledge that a wolf is very likely to sneak into an animal pen and sneak out with its dinner without leaving any clues behind. In fact, when I was first making notes for this episode, I had written, erroneously, that a wolf was the initial suspect. Only later, when I read the story a second time, did I realize that Joseph believed he was hunting a bear. And that makes sense. While wolves do live in Quebec, they're generally absent from the southeast portion of the province, making bears a much more likely suspect. Now that's a fact that might not be known by a random reporter from New York State who just wants to tell a tale. So this small detail suggests that, if the story is complete fiction, it may have at least been fabricated by someone who knew something about the area and the creatures who live there. Now to the big question. If there is some truth to the claim, if Monsieur Charland was indeed in possession of an extraordinary creature that was being ready for examination or exhibition, what happened to it? Some believe it's hidden away and forgotten in a storage room at McGill University. Others suggest it was accidentally destroyed by an unskilled taxidermist in an earnest attempt to preserve the creature. Whether that creature was real or simply a failed hoax is up for debate. Personally, I like to imagine a scenario similar to Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea, where Charlande attempts to transport the monster's remains to a train station only to have it slowly consumed by various creatures who nip at the corpse in the back of an open wagon until there is nothing left but an unbelievable tale. With no date, no follow-up, no local folklore, and no body, it's not looking good for the story. On a scale between legend and lie, between scientific discovery of the century and 19th century hoax, we're much closer to the latter. But that conclusion isn't much fun, is it? We're not here to debunk folklore, and nothing's conclusive, so let's entertain the legend a bit longer and move forward with a theory that Joseph LaSalle did in fact shoot and kill something in the forest near his home, and that he and his fellow farmers breathlessly relayed that story to a reporter. If that's true, then we must ask, in the words of that anonymous reporter, what can the monster be that was causing such a sensation? There are a few theories. Part 3. A Remarkable Creature Author Andrew Hind suggests that Joseph LaSalle may have fought and killed a giant bat on account of its monkey-like head and coarse fur. Now, that might sound less exciting than an eagle-monkey-wolf-cow hybrid, but it's no less monstrous or shocking. The largest bat on record, the flying fox, has a wingspan of just under five feet. The demon of Santa Marie, by comparison, was said to have a wingspan three times that size, larger than any living bat and rivaling small modern aircraft. In his book Canadian Monsters and Mythical Creatures, Hind shares two unsighted stories about average Ontarians encountering giant bats sometime in the early 2000s, and links them to this 19th century story about Quebec. He suggests that maybe these colossal chiropterans were migrants from the unexplored jungles of Latin America, where giant bats and bat-like creatures can be found in local folklore, mythology, and even the fossil record from a near 2,000 years ago, 
There's just one problem with Hine's theory. In addition to a monkey-like head, large wings, dark fur, and wolf-like legs, characteristics that are, admittedly, somewhat bat-like, the monster was also said to be sporting large black feathers and a long tufted tail. Characteristics that don't quite fit with our understanding of bat physiology. It's unlikely that Hind was simply unaware of this part of the article. He actually quotes most of the article, without citation, in his book. Yet he omits the feathers and tail entirely, presumably because they interfere with the story he's trying to tell. So, while it's fun to entertain the idea that the monster was some sort of bat or bat-like creature, its full description might warrant an explanation that's even more bizarre. So here's one. Maybe the creature was a Mothman. Not THE Mothman, mind you, not the famous American cryptid first spotted in the 1960s. For all we know, he's still alive and well in West Virginia. But the creature of Sainte Emilie could be a member of the same species. Mothman's Canadian cousin, perhaps. That's the theory posited by writer and researcher John Wyatt on phantomsandmonsters.com, a popular blog about cryptozoology and the paranormal. It's a strange theory, but it also makes a strange sort of sense. The world-famous Mothman was first reported in November of 1966, when two couples from Point Pleasant, West Virginia, encountered, quote, a man-sized, bird-like creature, end quote. Or, as one witness put it, something like a man with wings, roughly six or seven feet tall, with a ten-foot wingspan. The light gray creature used those wings to glide alongside their vehicle, matching speeds of up to 100 miles per hour. Later, some would blame the creature for the disappearance of their dog, odd behavior of their electronics, and, most famously, the deadly collapse of a suspension bridge. Clear and complete descriptions are few and far between, so the Mothman is often depicted as some sort of winged creature cloaked in heavy shadow. Whether it has a monkey face, wolf legs, or a tufted tail is anyone's guess, but one thing is certain. There would be no mistaking it for a giant bat. To quote the original article from the Point Pleasant Register, quote, They said it didn't resemble a bat in any way, but maybe what you would visualize as an angel, end quote. An angel, or perhaps a demon. Point Pleasant, West Virginia isn't too far from Santa Marie de l'Energie, Quebec, just under 1,100 kilometers or 680 miles as the Mothman flies. So it's plausible that a flying creature associated with one part of the continent might appear from time to time in places like the Noir River Valley. Perhaps that's why these authors are so quick to suggest that the demon of Sainte Emilie is from somewhere else, whether that be the jungles of South America or the woodland of West Virginia. But it's not really fair, is it? New Jersey has the Jersey Devil, Kansas City has its winged demon, even Cornwall in the UK has an owl man. Why then can't Quebec claim this creature for its own? It's easy to imagine. Sainte-Emilie de l'Energie lies in the foothills of the ancient Laurentian Mountains, within a broad valley of sugar maple and yellow birch, dotted here and there at higher altitudes with spinnies of fragrant fir and narrow paper birch. It sits at the crossroads of Route 347, running east to west, and Route 131, which winds its way north along the Riviere Noire, through dense woods and countless lakes to the sprawling Lac Tarot, just one fraction of thousands of kilometers of pristine parkland, leafy forests, and untouched wildlife reserves 
stretching from central Ontario to the Gulf of St. Lawrence. If you're open-minded to the theories of cryptozoology, it's not much of a stretch to think that somewhere in that vast wilderness, strange winged creatures may be nesting in cliffside caverns of Precambrian rock or fishing with their monstrous claws the lakes and rivers of hidden valleys. Even if you're a skeptic, there's no denying that regional monsters are a lot of fun. They can add character and color to a place, contribute to its culture, and they're fun to think about. They appeal to that part of our brains that loves the dark, the weird, and the mysterious. For a good example, look no further than Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Every year, the little town of just 4,000 people quadruples in size during the annual Mothman Festival. The event draws an ever-growing crowd to a wide range of events and attractions, from a Mothman-themed 5K run, to a Mothman hayride for the kids, to cosplay parties, guest speakers, live YouTubers and podcasters, and, my favorite, all sorts of folks selling various collectibles of cryptid culture kitsch around a life-size statue of the legendary creature. There's little doubt that monster folklore can bring big returns to a small town's economy. And looking at the success of Mothman and other 20th century cryptids, you can't help but wonder. If that report of a farmer's encounter with a strange creature had been printed in 1992 and not 1892, would there have been additional sightings? Would the village of Saint Emilie or the city of Joliet have a life-sized monster statue, a monster museum, and a shop or two full of monster t-shirts, shot glasses, and novelty pins? In 2020, Saint Emilie de l'Energie celebrated its 150th birthday, and in 2021, revealed a new municipal logo created to, in their words, highlight the development potential of the area. They also continue to encourage various forms of ecotourism and have created a circuit of 25 informational panels about the area's history and heritage. Think of how more enticing that would be if it included Joseph LaSalle's harrowing battle with a winged demon. Or if their hiking guides glibly warned visitors to watch the skies for more mysterious monsters. Part 4. From Lie to Legend I think our long-forgotten monster deserves more than just a dead-on-arrival news story and the occasional comparison to other, more popular cryptids. I'd love to make this a thing, to help it rise above its dubious origins and transcend from forgotten lie to local lore. But to do that, it first needs a name, and I'd like to humbly submit three for your consideration. The name should be attention-grabbing, memorable, and, since this is a Quebec creature, the name should work just as well in French as it does in English. So I've asked Nicolas, a French-Canadian voice artist, to try them out, first in English, then in French. His take on the names should be especially helpful in deciding. The first option is obviously my favorite. It's the name of this episode and the name I use in the story. The Demon of Saint-Emilie. Here's Nicolas' take. Le Démon de Saint-Emilie. I like it. A human-sized figure with a primate face and massive wings could resemble some people's idea of a fallen angel. And the juxtaposition of demon and saint works quite well, especially from a region that, historically, has been predominantly Catholic. Okay, next one. The Matawini Monster. Le Monstre de Matawini. Not bad. Matawini, by the way, is the regional county municipality. The name has some solid alliteration, but the word monster is a bit nondescript, and it lacks impact. 
Finally, here's option three, the Bat Beast of Black River. Not bad, right? It's descriptive, and the alliteration gives it some rhythm, making it a lot of fun to say. The only problem is it overemphasizes the chiropterin or bat-like nature of the beast, and as I already explained, comparing it to a giant bat might not be the most fair interpretation. Nevertheless, it sounds fantastic in English. But let's hear it in French. La bête chaussouris de la rivière noire. Not sure about that one. It's a bit awkward. It loses that all-important alliteration, and it really doesn't translate well. The French word for bat, chaussouris, literally translates in English to bald mouse. Not the most terrifying name for a creature. Personally, I think I'll stick with the first one. The Demon of Saint-Emilie. Whatever you call it, monster or myth, history or hoax, I hope you'll agree there's a fun opportunity here to claim and build upon a local legend. Santa Amelie is less than two hours outside Montreal, so if you're in the area, why not take a drive up north? Stay the weekend at an auberge or chalet, grab dinner at the local diner, go hiking, kayaking, snowmobiling, or sledding, but try to keep one eye on the sky. With a little luck, you might provide the next eyewitness account, curious audio recording, or hastily shot footage that will get more people talking about this mysterious and underappreciated creature, the Demon of Saint-Emilie. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember to support your local monster and the legends of your area. Learning these stories help us engage with the past and with the darker parts of our imaginations. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. This episode's sound design and mixing was by Joseph Fish. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.